How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. You can make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're also so very thankful that we have you to come to in times of difficulty, times of challenge, and we know that there are many people in the congregation as we've been praying this evening in prayer meeting that are facing uh, various uh, diseases and challenges, and and there are many uh, uh, folks in the congregation, friends and relatives who just face ongoing debilitating problems, whether it's uh, uh, Alzheimer's or whether it is cancer or whether it is some other ongoing uh, medical problem, we just pray that you would strengthen them uh, with your word and that uh, despite the fact that there's no pleasure in the difficulties we face and the challenges, we know that we can trust you and you can use this for a tremendous witness to other people. And in many, for most cases, the reason we go through these things is to be a witness and that we never know how that impacts uh, other people. Father, we're thankful for our time this evening to study your word, to be refreshed by it, to have our eyes open to the fact that there's a lot more going on around us than just what meets the eye, and that we need to be fully aware of the fact that we are engaged in a spiritual war, and the physical or political or social or cultural battles that we see are simply manifestations of an even greater invisible War, an angelic rebellion that began in eternity past, and <clears throat> while the strategic victory was won at the cross, it is when we as individual believers continue to study and apply your word and be engaged in the world but not of the world as our Lord prayed, that we are, um, that we are able to have tactical victories that will resonate through eternity. And so, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with your word this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Last time we got into this uh, passage dealing with the uh, evangelism of the Samaritans. And <clears throat> this is uh, I'm continuing our study from last time. Last time we looked at uh, uh, Simon the sorcerer began to look at this and began to look at the issue of his uh, of demon possession. And so we're continuing tonight looking at simony, which was named for him and what he does in this section, sorcery and salvation. The area where this is taking place is in the area known historically as Samaria and should be referred to as Samaria. It is bogus to refer to it as the West Bank. You know, vocabulary is a battlefield. And if the enemy wins a tactical victory by getting you to adopt their vocabulary, then that partially wins the battle. The idea that there is this autonomous uh, uh, political entity uh, that is uh, comprised of Arabs not in, and, and not under Israel uh, is the Israeli government 
is really a violation of law. And it's just amazing how internationally as well as nationally so many people today refuse to look at law. You ask most knowledgeable people what gave legal legitimacy to uh, to the state of Israel, and they would say that it's the UN resolution from November of 1947. That's completely false. Uh, number one, that wasn't its intent. Number two, that UN resolution was a non-binding resolution. And number three, though the uh, uh, Israeli gover- government, or even though it wasn't a nation yet, even though <clears throat> the uh, uh, authority of the Yeshuv accepted uh, that UN resolution, the Arabs didn't. So it has no, it had no power. It was dead on arrival. And the, what really gives legal basis for Israel's right to exist as a nation, as we've studied before, is the, are, are the San Remo resolutions that establish the boundaries, the borders of all the nations in the Middle East with the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. And, and the San Remo resolutions, the Balfour Declaration was made legal, given international legal status, which it did not have before. And it was, uh, uh, and all of the land west of the Jordan River was to be given to, as a national homeland for the Jewish people. The Arabs who lived there were given uh, civil rights, were given religious freedom according to the international law of the uh, San Remo Re- Resolution, but they were not given political rights. Political rights were given to the inhabitants of all the other nations uh, that were under either the French mandate, that would be Syria and Lebanon, or under uh, a British mandate other than Palestine. Palestine uh, and everything west of the Jordan River was uh, to be for the Jewish people as a national homeland. That term, national homeland, if you exegeted in terms of the way the language was used at the time, meant a nation. So uh, uh, Samaria is the area that is north of Judea. Judea is the area in the south. The two comprise uh, what is usually referred to as uh, today as either the West Bank or as the Palestinian Authority. And if you refer to it as Palestine, then you have, whether you like it or not, and I know of one young man who's a son of a pastor who uh, works in archaeology over there and made the tragic error of saying, well, I chose that because I didn't want to choose sides. No, if you call it Palestine, you have chosen the anti-Zionist, anti-Israel side. Whatever word you choose, you're selecting a side. There's no neutrality. And uh, this is Samaria. Last week I met with a uh, uh, lady here in Houston who was a representative, uh, works, she's an Orthodox Jew, lives in, in uh, not too far from, uh, from Sikar, which is where we're uh, looking here, just south of Mount Gerizim and, and Mount Ebal, or just to the uh, east of Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And she works with, organiz- with Christian organizations to encourage those leaders to bring their tours into the West Bank, into Sumerian Judea. And I'm really excited about it because... Uh, uh, when we go on our tour in in June, we had the, we have the opportunity to take a whole day and to go up into this area, go to areas, uh, go to Sikar, go to Samaria, go to the area where uh, uh, Joseph is buried, uh, they, Joseph's tomb. They're doing a lot of excavations now at uh, at Shiloh, which is you call Shiloh, 
which is where the tabernacle resided for, for many years. So this is, I'm just so excited beside myself. This is going to be a fabulous, fabulous opportunity to uh, go to these places. So this is where this is taking place, not in Sebast, which is the Greek, excuse me, the Roman name that was given in honor of Caesar to ancient Samaria, which was purchased by Omri, built by Ahab. But um, it's probably Sychar because Sebast is primarily a Gentile city at this point in history. And there are a few people who don't take that view, but I've been surprised as I've been reading more and more in this section of, of Scripture and commentaries how many scholars understand this is Sikar, not uh, not uh, Sebast at this particular time, even though you have maps like this one that indicate that it was in Sebast. Now, as I pointed out last time and the time before, Philip went down to a city of Samaria. doesn't identify it in the text, so we're making an educated guess that it's probably Sychar, uh, where the where Jacob's well was located at the base of Mount Gerizim and Ebal, which is so critical because this has such uh, resonance with Old Testament events. That's where uh, Israel reconfirmed the Mosaic Covenant with God at the near the beginning of the conquest. So uh, Philip goes to the city of Samaria, preaches Christ, which as we saw means to announce Christ. Here it's the word keruso. In the previous verse it's uh, evangelizo, which means to, uh, to give the gospel. And the multitudes responded. This must have been fabulous, just tremendous to see so many people responding to the gospel and people who were who, who they thought were the, their basic enemy because of the deep, profound mistrust, hatred, uh, between the Samaritans and, and the Jews. And when they saw the miracles which Philip performed, which were signs of an apostle of the apostolic authority, uh, they responded in belief. And then we looked at uh, the whole topic of demon possession, looking at uh, verse 7, the terms unclean spirits, and especially the key verb uh, came out. This is what is so crucial is to understand this verb. And I went through the basic arguments last time showing that the, the key words that are used to describe demon possession are either the phrase that's used here in the lower right of the uh, image, uh, ekon daimonion, to having a demon, which doesn't tell you anything. Uh, you can have a dog and it's external, or you can have a cold and it's internal. It's, a, it's an ambiguous phrase. So is the verb, uh, the participle, rather, that's used uh, in a parallel to this in many passages, which is daimonizomai. And we went through the passages in Luke related to the casting out of the demon, uh, the gathering demoniac. Uh, what we saw is that these phrases don't tell us much about the situation, but the the verb that is associated with removing the demon and also this, the, the same or similar form of that verb that talks about the entrance of the demon tells us a lot about uh, what this involves. And we saw that last time that it's this terminology of casting out or going out or going in that defines the distinction between this kind of event and demon influence. Now, most of us don't want to think that we are demon-influenced, but every human being on the planet is demon-influenced, and every time uh, you're out of fellowship, you're demon-influenced. 
and there are different degrees of demon influence. I want to talk a little bit more about that uh, tonight. That's one thing that's important. It's not just a spectrum where you start off on one end and you're just mildly demon-influenced, and somewhere along the spectrum you become uh, demon-possessed, which is a more extreme form of it. Uh, that's how some people would want to describe it today, but that that's, doesn't fit with the language of going out, coming in. This shows an absolute... Uh, con- or a, a control by the demon internally of a person's body where they take over the control of the body, but they don't oblit- totally obliterate the individual person that's there. The soul is still there. The volition is still active. It's just uh, somehow in a uh, non, uh, in, in a state where they can't be active. So it's these three verbs, ace erkamai, to go into, ex erkamai, to go out of, and ekbalo to be cast out of that define for us what demon influence is. And I just, I really hammered this last time when we, we looked at the passage in Matthew, or excuse me, in John 13, uh, verse 2, where it talks about Satan put something in the heart of, uh, of, of Judas Iscariot, in the mind of Judas Iscariot, that that was demon influence. But later on, when you get down around verse 13 or 14, Satan enters into him. And that's clear terminology. If that doesn't mean demon possession or satanic possession in, in, in John 13, and we, we become inconsistent with our use of language, which is typical of postmodernism, we, just, we want to make language mean different things. Now, that didn't originate with postmodernism. Eve was doing that in the garden. But that is a very, that's a strong trend today. Uh, that if we sacrifice that word in John 13, the imp, the real result of that is you have sacrificed any way of defining and determining what demon possession actually is. You have sacrificed your demonology on the altar of modern idiocy. And so that tells us, it's very clear that, that, uh, that <clears throat> Judas was was demon possessed. Now, at the end last time, I was I was kind of hurrying. I wanted so I wanted to touch base on these things a little bit more. One of the strongest, the, the, to me, the strongest argument that we have, why a Christian cannot, it's impossible for a Christian to be demon possessed, is the language that we have in in uh, in the Bible describing the fact that the Christian is a temple. Of, uh, 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 created by the Holy Spirit, a temple for the indwelling of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting how things sort of come together during a week because last week on Friday morning I was talking with uh, some of the pastors that we have a class on on, uh, on, uh, on the Friday mornings, and I pointed out that uh, I was showing them a, 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 an older work that is uh, very helpful to pastors who are doing word studies, uh, called Synonyms of the Greek New Testament by Richard Trench, published, I think, in the late 1800s. And it's just every chapter is just a word study of different synonyms in Greek. And one of the, I think it's the third entry, the third chapter, is on the difference between two Greek words for temple. Heros, that is spelled H-I-E-R-O-S, H-I-E-R-O-S, and naos, N-A-O-S. 
And hieros is always used to refer to the temple precinct. Now, remember, we've studied the temple. We've studied the tabernacle. The temple precinct includes the, court, the outer courtyards. The, and for, the, for example, with the uh, temple of Herod, you have the courtyard of the women. You have the courtyard of the Gentiles. Uh, these are the outer, the outer courtyards. And that's all part of the hieros. That's the whole temple complex or the whole tabernacle uh, complex. But the Holy of Holies is always referred to only by the word naos, only by the word naos, and that's the inner sanctum. And so the argument has, uh, unfortunately, Christians have sort of uh, diluted the argument. They've said, um, premise, uh, God indwells the believer. Uh, minor premise, uh, Satan or demons cannot exist where God exists. Uh, conclusion, Christians cannot be de- therefore cannot be demon-possessed because the Holy Spirit lives inside of every believer. The weakness with that view is that, as it, as it will be responded to by, by others, is that, well, we have passages like Job 1 and Job 2 where Satan comes into the presence of God in heaven. So how can, uh, and Satan is still in the presence of God. It's not until Revelation chapter 12, midpoint of the tribulation, that Satan and the demons are cast out of heaven. So how can you say that, that evil, that demons cannot be in the presence of God? The Bible doesn't, doesn't believe that. And I say, yes, that's right. The Bible doesn't say that. But the argument was misformulated. The argument is not God indwells every believer that evil cannot be in the same, coexist in the same place where God dwells. The argument is that at salvation, God makes you a naos temple. Nothing, that's like the holy of holies in the temple. Nobody could enter the holy of holies in an inappropriate or unclean manner without dying on the spot. Evil can coexist in the outer courtyard, but not in the Holy of Holies, in the inner sanctum where God is. And the believer's body is not a Hieros temple of the Holy Spirit. It is a Nows temple of the Holy Spirit. And that is a a powerful argument that Christians cannot be demon-possessed because that would be a complete violation of this holy sanctum that the believer becomes at the instant of salvation for the indwelling of the triune God. And this this is remarkable for many, many reasons, but it, it clearly dispels this superficial reduction of the argument here into this simplicity of God indwells well, where God is, evil can't coexist. That, that's just not true. It is clear from Scripture that Satan comes into the presence of God. But he's not coming into the naos, inner temple, throne room of God. And nothing evil in all the history of the, the tabernacle and temple was allowed to come into that, that Holy of Holies without... Uh, that's why the high priest, when the high priest would wear his robes and he would go in on the Day of Atonement... He had bells all along the hem of his robe so that as long as he was moving, you would hear the bells. If the bells stopped ringing, everybody would, what happened? Is he alive? And he had a rope tied to his ankle so that if he died in the Holy of Holies, nobody could go in and get him. They would have to drag him out by the rope. So this this just emphasizes for us the uniqueness and distinctiveness of what happens. It's not a 
simple, superficial, well, God just lives inside the believer. No, you become a nowest temple of God, which is profound. So biblical usage emphasizes going into and coming out as the defining characteristics of having a demon or being demon-possessed. Demon possession occurs only when a demon or Satan takes up residence inside of a person controlling their body and actions, but not so much as wiping out their ex- the existence and volition of the soul. So they still have volition, buried as it might be. They still have volition so they can respond to the gospel, at which point the demon would be ejected And so exorcism, by the way, the word exorcism, like you have in uh, the the movie The Exorcist in the book uh, The Exorcist, exorcism is only used in the Bible to describe the actions of unbelieving uh, magicians and sorcerers. The word exorchizo, the the verb, is never used uh, uh, with the the actions of Jesus or the disciples. They always ekbalo, they cast out a demon. And today the only way to cast out a demon is to give somebody the gospel, and if they respond, then that demon's going to be, uh, be ejected uh, because that person is still there. And that's the only way to do it. We, we're not authorized to cast out demons like the apostles were. If the epistles, think about it this way, if the epistles are given to church-age believers to tell us everything we need to know about living the Christian life. And nowhere in any of the epistles from Romans to Jude is there a mention of demon possession. So if demon possession is the problem today that some Christians think it is, then why is it ignored in the epistles? I mean, that is an argument from silence, but the silence should be deafening. Because the fact that God says he tells us everything we need to know, and he doesn't mention the fact that, oh, gee, remember, you can be demon-possessed. Hello, you need to know the solution. It's not mentioned. That should tell us right away It's maybe it's not a problem. Maybe it's not an issue. Maybe the issue today is simply the gospel. So in contrast to demon-possession, demon-influence, though, describes the person operating or should be operating or thinking, uh, or excuse me, operating on thinking, which originates from demons. And you have two kinds of demon influence. There's an extreme demon influence, which we see with Ananias and Sapphira, where Satan put it into their heart to lie against the Holy Spirit, and Judas Iscariot, where Satan put it into his heart to uh, betray Jesus. Uh, John 13, 2, Ananias and Sapphira, we studied that in uh, Acts chapter 5. And then the the, uh, rest of us exhibit, that would be direct demon influence. But the rest of us are constantly under uh, indirect demon influence. And that is because that's nothing more than simply um, uh, the influence of any kind of non-biblical thinking. So who are, who are the demons? Let's just review this basic doctrine a little bit. What do we know about the origin of the demons? Well, the demons originated after Satan fell. Satan was originally called Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to, 14, 12 to 14. In the Hebrew, it's really Halel ben Shahar, which means uh, the, the, the bright star, the son of the dawn. And it refers to the fact that he was the brightest of all of the angels. The angels are often described as stars. 
And over a period of time, he influenced a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion against God. And we see this uh, in Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. Now, that happens in the future, and somebody may look at this and say, well, this is describing events in the tribulation when they're ejected from heaven, but it's also sort of describing a broad historical sweep because it begins with the dragon and the, you know, a description of the relation of the kingdom, the final form of the kingdom, and it just makes a past tense state, statement in verse 4, uh, Revelation 12:4, that his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now, they all get thrown to the earth halfway through the tribulation, but the next sentence says, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. That's Mary. Uh, to devour her child, actually the woman is Israel, and giving birth to the Messiah, rather, to devour her child as soon as it was born. That's historical. That refers back to uh, the birth of Christ about 5 or 6 B.C. So this statement by John is not talking about everything that's transpiring. He's giving us background information on identifying uh, the dragon and the these uh a third of the angels that, that are with him that are ejected out of heaven in the at, at the midpoint of the tribulation. So the uh, demons originated in eternity past. They're organized the same as elect angels. Terms such as principality, power, might, dominion are terms that describe different hierarchies uh, or different authority structures. In Ephesians one twenty one. We read that Jesus is elevated far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And the principality, power, might, and dominion is a reference to angelic authorities, all angelic, whether they're fallen or elect. Ephesians 6.12 specifically uses this terminology with reference to demons. And remember, in Ephesians 6.10, we're told that that, that our, our war is not against visible powers. It's against invisible powers. And so the only way we can know anything about it is what the Word of God tells us because we can't see our enemy. We can't observe his influence. We can only follow the instructions that God has given us. And Ephesians 6.12, we read, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Now, this is an interesting term here. This is the word ion. Now, ion is, is a time word, and um, it's a word that refers to a, a period of time, but it is also a word that, that has the idea of the thinking that dominates that period of time. This is the word that we find over in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, and that's how it's translated and should be translated because in this kind of a context, Ion and Cosmos are looking at the same thing but from different perspectives. Cosmos looks at the false thinking of, uh, of the creaturely world and in terms of its organization, whereas Ion looks at it in terms of the time span in which it operates. And so we see that we... Uh, uh, <clears throat> that these are rulers of the darkness of this age this time frame. And so the darkness often is a representation of the dark 
system of thinking uh, of Satan. We're fighting against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, this describes these the, the order, their structure. Uh, we know from passages that talk about our, the warfare that we have is a word related to stratego, strategy, uh, strategizing. It, it's, there's, there's thought, there's purpose, there's planning. Uh, Satan is not just attacking the earth willy-nilly. There is structure and order to what he does. But we know from Job that Satan can't do anything apart from God's permission. He's not acting in pure autonomy. He must have God's permission uh, to do anything, and he has to seek God's permission to test uh, Job. And he's limited in his first request as to how far he can go. And then when he comes back the second time, then God gave him a little, uh, uh, expanded the, his opportunities a little bit more. So we see this order and organization among the fallen angels. The Old Testament emphasizes these fallen angels, though the Old Testament doesn't give us a uh, much of a demonology, much of a detailed analysis of demons as the New Testament does. This has caused some, some people to kind of get shipwrecked on this little show because I've heard... Uh, the objection that, well, if you look at uh, what is said in Judaism, they really don't see Satan as a fallen angel. He's just the accuser against God. And you, they don't really have an understanding of, of, uh, of fallen angels. And that's, that's, that's true. But you have to remember that modern Orthodox Judaism, we're not even going to talk about all the liberal varieties, but modern Orthodox Judaism is based on the Talmud, and various uh, different um, <clears throat> revisions and reinterpretations even of the Talmud. But the Talmud itself is a reinterpretation of the Mishnah, and the Mishnah is a reinterpretation of the Old Testament. And so there were, and we have evidence from, uh, from for example, Qumran and from other ancient documents that the rabbinical beliefs that dominated Judaism prior to the time of Christ, prior to the first century, are different from what comes along in the 2nd or 3rd or 4th century after the uh, Mishnah is codified and finally uh, uh, solidified and finalized in about uh, 225, and then after that we, you, you get the Talmud. So don't look at modern Judaism as a source of any kind of truth in terms of uh, understanding the, the Old Testament. So you have passages like uh, the, these two passages I have on the screen. First of all, Deuteronomy 32.17, which is a passage speaking to about the Gentiles and the Jews who have followed them in their apostasy, and it refers to the Gentiles as having sacrificed to demons, not to God. Well, we usually think of false gods versus the true God, but the false gods of the context here, this is talking about idolatry, the and, and Moses sees the, uh, I, the real power behind the physical idols is demonic thought. So sacrificing to an idol was in reality sacrificing to the demonic religion that was uh, expressed by that idol. So Deuteronomy 32:17 so they sacrificed to demons not to God, uh, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Uh, Psalm 106, 36 and 37 uh, makes it clear in the parallelism we see there, talking about the apostate 
uh, generations earlier in Judaism, Psalm 106.36 says, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. So the demon is parallel to idols. And it's talking about in the act of, of human sacrifice, the sacrifice of infants uh, in the Valley of Hinnom, which is where we get the terminology for, for uh, Hades, where they had the, set up uh, the, the idols for Moloch and Chemosh, who were the pagan gods of, uh, of the Moabites and Ammonites, and they would bring the, their babies and their young children to let them be burned alive in the arms of those, those idols. Just, just absolutely horrible. But this is where paganism leads. Paganism leads to an absolute uh, rejection of life. This is seen, and, and a great place to go to think through this a little bit is to go to uh, Moses' parting comments to the to uh, the, the Israelites and and Joshua's parting comments to the Israelites because they both offer them the option between life and death, life and death. And if you follow the path of truth in God, you're following life. But if you follow paganism and atheism, it always leads to death. Pa- uh, demonism, which it, that is, always leads to death. Leviticus 17.7 says, uh, They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons. Again, identifying demons are the real power behind uh, the, the idols, the false gods. So uh, we see this again in Leviticus 19.13, Give no regard to the mediums and familiar spirits. So this is all part of the demonology of the Old Testament. And all of these verses give us an understanding as well of showing the connection between uh, demons and false religion, any false religious system. And remember, a religious system can both affirm and deny God. If the statement, there is a God, is religious, then the statement, there is no God, must also be religious. And so atheism is just as much an idolatrous system as theism, as uh, as any other false religion, First uh, Corinthians ten twenty, Paul states this same truth in the New Testament. He says, "Rather the, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons." So this is all part of that <clears throat> recognizing in the world that when we're buying into false religious thinking, it is demonic in its uh, origin and in its source. We also know that that fallen angels are comprised of various groups. So a third of the angels are fallen angels, but not all fallen angels are active demons. There are three groups of of, uh, demons. The first is a group that is... Uh, in a position of being uh, under uh, under bondage and in prison today, and that is, they're mentioned in Jude chapter six and Second Peter two four. This is a reference to uh, Genesis uh, chapter six, which is the episode about the sons of God. Now it always amazes me how there are. Uh, disagreements on this, but there's disagreements on anything. You just have to read and analyze all the different arguments. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, uh, verse 2, we read, 
Uh, I'll start in verse 1. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. The sons of God is a term that refers to uh, angelic beings. We know because of what they're doing that these are fallen angels, but the term can refer to either uh, uh, elect angels or fallen angels. And the reason they're called sons of God is because uh, angels were each individually created by God. They, they did not have two angels didn't get together and procreate and produce a baby angel. And so they are not sons of other angels. They are all directly produced by God, so they're called sons of God. And the term always refers to, to angels in the Old Testament. And if this passage in Genesis 6, 2 and following doesn't describe uh, fallen angels, then it really ma- makes it almost impossible to understand what's going on in Jude uh, 6 and 2 Peter uh, 2, 4. In Jude 6, we're told the angels who did not keep their uh, proper domain, and that refers to their original position. They did not stay in their re- original position. So that tells us right away that he's talking about fallen angels, but they left their own abode, that is their proper uh, dwelling place or proper position as God had created them. And so then we're told he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness uh, for the judgment of the great day. And so they are currently under condemnation. Now, what's interesting is that this verse implies, and when we get a, you get around to it in the Jude study, you'll see this, that what this verse implies is that as fallen angels, they were already under a judgment, weren't they? Uh, Matthew twenty-five forty-one that God created the uh, lake of fire for the devil and his angels. So there is an indictment and a condemnation of all of the angels that followed Satan in his rebellion. But among those who followed him in that rebellion was a subset of angels who committed the Genesis 6-3 sin. And those who committed the Genesis 6-3 sin are in a a place of temporary punishment right now. They're reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for what? For the judgment of the great day. In other words, there's also another judgment and another punishment on top of the one already announced that's going to come upon them. So they're all headed to the lake of fire. Currently, they're in the abyss under chains of darkness, and ultimately there's going to be another pronouncement of their guilt and additional punishment will be enforced in the lake of fire. So that, again, indicates that there are degrees of punishment in the lake in the lake of fire. Now, Jude 6 is a, a fascinating passage because uh, it's, it states that the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he's reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner... To these, these what? These angels. So the seventh verse, which I don't have, didn't put up on the screen, the seventh verse talks about the sexual sin of sodomy in Sodom and Gomorrah. The sexual sin of sodomy that is 
in a similar or like manner as the sin of these angels. So that phrase tells us that the that in Jude 7, the sin of the Sodomites is, is somewhat similar to the sin of these angels. So that means it's a sexual sin. I'm not saying it was a homosexual sin, but it's a sexual sin. And so the Bible is very clear, and so far in this country we can still state the fact that homosexuality is a sin, just like lying and jealousy and bitterness and anger and all other sins. And we haven't been forced yet by the government to not say these things, but there are a number of cases that have occurred already both in Britain and Canada where this is a hate speech. To even read the scripture which states that homosexuality is a sin is, is a matter of hate speech. I'm glad I'm back in Texas now as a pastor because if I get thrown in prison, I will be with a lot of other pastors, and so there will be some sort of protection in numbers. Quit chuckling back there, Gene. So there are, uh, but there's pressures there, and who would have thought, would you have ever thought in your wildest imagination that the vice president of the United States would come out and think that it would just fine and dandy, just hunky-dory, for men to be married to men and women to be married to women. This people have lost their ever-loving minds. Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, just move over. We're on our way. Second Peter 2.4 refers to the same incident. It says, If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So the idea again is stated there that they're being held for judgment. Well, wait a minute. I thought they were already judged in eternity past. Yes, they were. All the fallen angels were judged in eternity past. But this group, because they committed additional crimes and sins, they, they have additional judgment and punishment and condemnation. So that's one group of fallen angels, those who are in chains of darkness that committed the Genesis 6 uh, perversion. And then there are those who are in the abyss. This is described in the fifth trumpet judgment in Revelation uh, 9.1, where uh, John records with the fifth trumpet judgment that he saw a star from heaven. That's another term for an angel, which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit, or the abyss, was given to him. And then when he opens it, there's this uh, flock of, uh, creatures that comes out, the, and they're described in verse 7 and through 9, that the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of, of men. And the, uh, then in verse 8, goes on to say they had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings were like the sounds of chariots with many horses running into battle. Now, Hal Lindsey tried to relate this to Huey Cobra gunships, uh, but this, this is not that kind of phenomenological language. John isn't describing modern rep- weaponry uh, at all. He is describing what they look like. These are demonic creatures. So they have a bizarre appearance. This is not hum- these, these aren't human armies. These are demonic armies that are released upon the human race. Um, then we have, um, that goes on to describe that they had tails like scorpions. There were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men for five months. And they had as king over them the angel 
of the bottomless pit. That's the abyss again. Remember last week we said about the when Jesus cast out the uh, uh, the demon out of the gathering demoniac, and they said, "Wait, don't send us into the abyss." This is what, they didn't want to be part of this. They didn't want to be uh, imprisoned in the abyss. This is a horrible situation. So when they get released, they're going to be unhappy. They're not going to be uh, thrilled that they have been incarcerated for so many years. So they are going to want to vent their anger upon the human race. So they had a king over them as the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, or the Greek form, is Apollyon, which simply means the destroyer. So here are the uh, four different components of the abyss that we see in Scripture. Uh, First, there's paradise, also called Abraham's bosom. This is mentioned in Luke 23, 39 to 43. And also Ephesians 4, 8 through 10 tells us that paradise has now been transferred to heaven. So this is where all Old Testament saints went when they died up to the cross. They died, their souls went to the, uh, to the Abraham's bosom until the penalty of sin was paid. Then they were taken to heaven where paradise now exists. So all that you have left in Hades now are the three other compartments, the first of which is called torments, which is where all unsaved Human beings go. It's a place of temporary uh, punishment. It is not pleasant. The rich man is sent there in in, in the passage in Luke uh, 16, and in Luke 16, 19 to 31, he he describes it as a place of, of, of heat, a place where he is uh, he's thirsty, and that he has no uh, there, there's no relief. So there's the place of torments. All unbelievers go there until they're called out for the uh, great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. Then there's the second uh, other the, or the third compartment, the abyss, uh, which is the location of the demon army of the fifth uh, fifth trumpet, rather. I said fifth seal. It's the fifth trumpet judgment, rather, of the fifth trumpet, and. Um, this is described in Luke 8, 30 to 31, Revelation 9, and Revelation 21 through 3. This is where Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And then the fourth is Tartarus, the place where the chains of darkness in Genesis 6, where the sons of God, these, these angels we've just studied, are imprisoned. So these are th- three areas in torments, and this is where you see... Um, one group of angels, the sons of God, who committed the sin of Genesis 6. Another group, the demonic army for the fifth trumpet. And then a third group of demons comprise an army of 200 million. These are part of the sixth trumpet judgment. That sixth angel uh, blows his trumpet. He's told to release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, which is on the eastern border of the land God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's significant. At that border, these angels are, uh, who are bound are released, and they've been there prepared for the hour, day, and month, and year, and they're released to kill a third of, man, uh, of mankind. And they do this through an army of uh, 200 million ho- horsemen. These are not... 
the red Chinese, yellow Chinese, modern Chinese, any kind of Chinese. They're not, they're, they're de- demons. This is a demonic army that is released against Israel. This is, as we pointed out when I studied through Revelation, is that at the end of the tribulation period, the Satan and the demons have been cast to the earth. They're visible. The angelic conflict uh, comes to a resolution so that all of the demonic, uh, satanic issues become evident. Satan, the demons are visible. Satan will be worshipped in the Holy of Holies. Uh, all of these things are going to happen and it's, uh, it's going to be just a horrendous time. So back to our passage in Acts 8. Um, these unclean spirits come out, and uh, there's a deliverance. Why? Because they're announcing the gospel and the Messiah. This is all part of what the Messiah would bring, and the result is there's a great joy in the city. But then we're told about a certain man, a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city. Now, the word here for sorcery is the word, uh, actually it's the verb uh, maguo, M-A-G-E-U-O, where we get our word magic, and it ultimately derives from a Persian word for a Median tribe. Remember the Medes and the Persians, the Medes were a uh, an ethnic group that existed down, came out of the Zagros Mountains in the uh, southwestern part of uh, Iran, modern Iran, and they had one of their tribes were the Magi. And this was a tribe that specialized in astrology, and it, it was specialized in all kinds of uh, fortune telling and other things. And eventually, they ri- they rose to a position of prominence, political prominence, in the government of the Parthian Empire. So they were the ones who chose the kings. They were the most powerful of the tribes. Well, because of their expertise in astrology and in sorcery. Their, their name became associated with that, and so that is how you get the development of the, of the verb uh, magoi, maguo, actually, maguo, which would be the idea of practicing magic. This isn't just some sort of leisure domain, some sort of sleight of hand. This is, uh, he is truly practicing a demon-empowered uh, ma- uh, magic. And so he's practicing sorcery. Now, the other word that's used for sorcery in the New Testament, the one that is listed in um, the list of the works of the flesh and translates sorcery in many translations, is pharmakeia, where we get our word pharmacy. So, you know, if you're a pharmacist, you're practicing sorcery. Just kidding. Just wanted to see if anybody was paying attention uh, pharmakeia re- refers to the fact that they used uh, hallucinogenic drugs in uh, the practice of their religious system in order to have an outer body experience of some type where they would get in touch with with the demons. And so that's that's the emphasis here in pharmakeia. It's not the use of aspirin or antibiotics or drugs in the, like that in the in the modern sense. Uh, but it is a basis for showing that the use of of drugs from from marijuana to heroin to uh, whatever uh, is part of the work of the flesh because it is it puts you out of control of your mind and in a position where you are more open to active demonic influence and if an unbeliever to demon possession. 
Now, Simon, we're told in verse 13, also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed because he saw the miracles and the signs of which were done. So he's a believer. But is he? That's the question. So I'm going to come back next time, and we're going to look at this whole issue of the gospel and Simon Magus, the sorcerer. Because Simon Magus becomes the boogeyman in early Christianity. When Irenaeus, who is considered the great heresiologist, now there's a good word for you to go look up later on, heresiologist, that is somebody who has studied heresy. And he, wa- he wrote in his book, Against the Heretics, in about 160 to 170 A.D., so that's 130 years after this, that Simon Magus is the originator of Gnosticism. And so whether it's the historical Simon Magus who became an apostate and, be, and, and then got involved in all kinds of Gnosticism, or whether it was simply that his name was used and co-opted by, by Gnostics, by the second century, Simon Magus is the uh, wicked witch of the East. He is uh, everybody's uh, evil person. And so uh, there are volumes written about Simon Magus and all of his, his Gnosticism and magic and demonism and the occult and everything finds a home in Simon Magus. And so it is assumed that, that, that the Simon Magus of the legends is historically this Simon Magus. We have to look at that. I don't think there's evidence to prove or disprove that. But, that's, uh, but, if, but the thing is, if he becomes this horrible uh, heretic, then almost every Christian you talk to, every theologian you talk to says, well, Simon really wasn't a believer. And so we'll get into that next time because you hear the same thing today. You've probably done it. You look at somebody you know, somebody you went to church with at some point. Now they're living their life. uh, They're on drugs or they have given themselves over to sexual perversion or whatever it might be. And you say, I just thought that person was a believer. You don't understand grace very well if you've ever said that. And I'm not going to have a show of hands because I think everybody here has probably said that at one time or another. And that's just not grace because we don't know. Anybody can commit any sin. The issue isn't what sins have you committed. The issue is have you trusted in Christ to pay for the sins? And he either paid for all of them or he didn't pay for any of them. And we have to understand that throughout Scripture the emphasis is always what? believe. And it doesn't say, and uh, Simon superficially believed, or Simon partially believed, or Simon fooled everybody into thinking he believed. It says Simon believed. Same thing it says about everybody else. So we'll start there next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things in your word and to be reminded that we're living in the midst of a, of a battle, a spiritual warfare against forces that are unseen and that are wicked, and that out out <clears throat> maneuver us and are more powerful than we can uh, ever imagine, and yet they are a very real influence on the world, and yet our focus is not on discerning their influence, 
but is on knowing truth and applying truth. That is our defense to rest in you and to trust in you. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, understand assimilate what we've studied this evening and that it would challenge us to think in a more realistic way about life, that it's not just the physical, but the battle, as Paul says, isn't with flesh and blood. It is with the spiritual forces of wickedness. And, Father, the only fortification we have is your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.